Smartcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. Guys, welcome back to E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we get to chat with all kinds of interesting people in the world of entrepreneurship. And today is my conversation with Alana Ben-Ari. She's the founder and CEO of 21 Toys. The company's Empathy Toy, their first product, originally designed for the blind, is now used in thousands of schools, homes, and corporations across 45 countries. It's been featured in time as one of six new technologies shaping classrooms and offices of the future. Alana herself has spoken at TEDx and at conferences around the world, and in this episode, we discuss teaching empathy and other key emotional intelligence skills, why toys are the new textbooks, and the gap between what kids today are being taught versus what jobs will actually exist when they graduate. So without delay, here is my short but very insightful chat with Alana Benari. Okay, so 21 Toys started as a thesis project, or at least the Empathy Toy did sort of started as a thesis project and then sort of evolved from there into a full entrepreneurial venture. So can you go back to your project in fourth year and what you were working on and how this sort of became a business? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an industrial designer, so I studied product design and I was in my thesis year of school at Carleton University. And the empathy toy that my business is it's essentially the the main the main toy that we now have was my thesis project in school and i originally designed it for the visually impaired community so i uh, is my last year of school what they do is they actually partner you with an enterprise and so i got partnered with the canadian national institute for the blind mm-hmm. and their thesis actually their challenge that they presented was to design a navigational aid for the visually impaired and what was interesting is I, my joke is that uh, I think they thought that I was going to design a BlackBerry with uh, really big buttons, mm-hmm. but the design process actually starts with empathy. And so I went to the library to read about visual impairment for a few minutes and then thought, this is ridiculous. I should go speak to those who are living with it and their friends and family. So by speaking with them, I realized there was a huge social and emotional gap between the visually impaired community and the sighted community. And I decided that I wanted to create a game that not only could help bridge the social and emotional gap, but actually was based on the foundations of the navigational training uh, that they they were taking. It's uh, called orientation mobility, but the foundations of it are, where am I? Where am I going? And how do I get there? And when I discovered that, I thought that's such a wonderful framework for what a game or a toy could be. And then I gave myself the challenge of making it so it was a game they could play with their their sighted classmates. So that was essentially what the entire I devoted my my entire last year of school to, while while taking obviously a full workload, a full course load. And it was an incredible experience. I was testing it during the day with uh, students who who had visual impairments, uh, and then at night with my sighted 
classmates who were designers, you know, 20 to 40s. And they were actually having just as much challenge and finding just as much uh, and as many insights as, as the students I was testing on it during the day. And that's when I got the idea that it had a lot of a lot of opportunity outside of just that community. Did you see the opportunity in schools right away? Mm-hmm. I think the the journey for me was more starting with a visually impaired community, and then I was focusing on students who were in about grade four. Then the next kind of insight I had was when I was using it with sighted adults. I realized it was it could be used with a much larger, like uh, older audience, you could say. So we say it's like ages six to 99. It wasn't the idea of having it used in schools as an educational tool. That took a really long time. So the toy won um, kind of this prestigious design award at the end of my uh, year of university. And it's a design competition amongst uh, a lot of the uh, industrial design graduates in Ontario. And so on best of show and I did what most designers do, which is I assumed, okay, well, this is a good idea. I want an award. Who do I sell it to? Because <laughs> mm. we're really encouraged to find other companies to bring it to life. And that didn't go very far. And so I actually took a break from it for a few years. And that's when I started to think about the education system. And um, I was actually inspired a lot by Sirkin Robinson's TED Talk on uh, Do Schools Kill Creativity? Yes. And that talk... Really it's had like what me. 50 million views or something. It's <laughs> last I checked, it was the most viewed TED Talk. Wow, yeah. Because uh, I think that's the thing. I think it resonated with so many people. We've all gone through, for the most part, all, almost all of us have gone through the educate some form of an education system that just seems so disconnected from real life. And I was one of those students. I was one of those students that was. I worked really, really hard to get good grades because that was my only way out of the city I lived in. So I needed a full scholarship to get into this design program. And uh, I then quickly discovered being good at school had very little to do with being good at at life or work for that matter. And that's when I started going back to this toy and said, you know, I actually think if we start teaching things like empathy, failure, you know, the ability to be creative and collaborative, talking about actual communication, that's something that I didn't find was taught or really valued in my education. And then the more people I talked to, the more that I heard that across the board that we we aren't teaching or valuing the skills that are now like necessary for for the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's just my opinion that the school system teaches you how to conform, whereas real life, you've got to learn how to create. I mean, you mentioned mm-hmm. Ken Robinson's talk and it's it's brilliant. Let's go back to something that you said earlier about being good at life. How did you attach mm-hmm. these things call them soft skills like innovation, creativity, empathy, uh, to Mm -hmm. being good at life and kind of see the big picture and then pick this project back up that you said you put down for a few years? Mm -hmm. I actually think setting design was a pretty amazing way to introduce what creative, complex problem solving looks like. And so the approach that a lot of people have heard of like design thinking, it starts at instead of trying to find the right solution it's really about finding the right problem Mm -hmm. so is this actually what the problem is i had a design one of my professors said that um people don't want don't want toasters they want toast and so we're all kind of just looking for their different solutions to what we're trying to get at but there's so many different approaches there's not one right answer and so many of the the theories and the methodologies around design were actually quite counter to what i felt that I was being taught with the idea of like, there's one right answer. It's about conforming. It's about, you know, stay in your seat, raise your hand if you have a question. It's just like, it was coming from a a really, a place where I felt that 
there wasn't actually that much room for questioning and there wasn't that much room for, I don't want to say creativity because a lot of schools are different, but my school experience was that I was really strong in math science and I was like really good at physics, but I also was quite good at art. And I remember my school was like, that's cute. And then they actually scheduled the art class at the same time time as like a computer science class. And I was like the only person in the history of the school to want to take both those classes. And then when I chose art, it was like I committed some sort of crime. Like they couldn't understand why I was taking like not a real subject. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the mindset would be like, okay, that that's a nice hobby, but how are you going to make a mm-hmm. career as an artist type of mindset? Which yeah. Is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But and go I, ahead. And, and, I, and I think the timing is really interesting because I was being introduced to design thinking in, you know, the early 2000s. And it was, it's kind of feels like now people are hearing that term a lot more. They understand the value and the importance of design and design thinking. And even mm-hmm. the term innovations, it seems like it's been the last, you know, the last two decades that we're really starting to use those terms where there just wasn't that much of a value of it when I was going through that school system. And I think what I was picking up on was something that once I graduated and I had that toy, I think it was just starting to become more mainstream, the idea that we should be valuing these skills. And the timing seems to be great because I, I started 21 Toys five years ago. And right even the, the last two years, the amount of incredible publications that are coming out from the Harvard Business Review. Uh, LinkedIn is writing about that empathy is now actually the number one job skill. And it's coming at a time where, you know, a lot of organizations are struggling with what do they do with AI with the fact that things are starting to be automated mm-hmm. and, you know, the fear of like robots are taking, taking over our jobs. And it's, it's the human skills and the social and emotional skills that are not just nice to have. They're actually mandatory and, and really required for us to be developing and teaching so that we're going to be able to to adapt to kind of what the new world of work is going to look like. Yeah. So let me let me dig in there for a little bit. You mentioned, you know, skills that are being taught in schools versus, you know, what's actually going to be around, say, in the next five, 10, 20 years. You mentioned mm-hmm. AI. In terms of statistics, what are you seeing as it relates to uh, skills that the kids are being taught versus what jobs, you know, will be around mm-hmm. uh, when they get out? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of statistics going around. I think some of the ones that we like to share are that kids that were entering grade school, I think one or two years ago, by the time they're ready to join the workforce, 65% of them are going to be in jobs that don't even exist yet. Hmm. And so it's actually far less about getting someone prepared for a certain one job or one skill. It's really about giving them the capacity to be agile and flexible and creative and to be able to think on their feet. Meryl Hardiman is a professor from John Hopkins who listed the 21st century skills as complex problems, solving, innovation, creative collaboration. And now the future of jobs report that we like to reference a lot has actually put in the top 10 list. Creativity and social and emotional learning is now on that top 10 list. Whereas in the past, in the past, looking at what kind of, and Sirkin Robinson talks about this a lot, the idea that the old skills used to be about reading, writing, and arithmetic. And those three R's are no longer no longer relevant with the kind of skills that, that we need. So when it comes to things like automation, uh, there's, there's uh, different statistics out there, somewhere between 60 or 90%, depending on industries, that are going to be really severely disrupted by it. But what we like to focus on more is conversations around, well, what are the like the future job report has talked about, you know, what are those safe, the safer jobs? And they're the ones that, you know, that require humans. And mm-hmm. so 
social work, occupational therapy. There's a lot of, I would say, industries that are going to be affected more than others. But at the end of the day, every single organization is understanding now that the value and the importance of them really looking at the the social skills and the, the how, how do we support our teams and being really agile. So you talked about the complex problem solving, the agility, the emotional mm-hmm. intelligence, all of these soft skills that are going to be critical going forward. Can you explain for those listeners that have not seen your TED Talk and that have not seen or played with the empathy toy, how it helps with those things? <laughs> so this is the part where I will absolutely explain it. It's it's a funny thing because I talk a lot about it. And like a lot of what I, we say is people talk about complex problem solving and innovation and you can't teach them with a textbook. So we like to say that toys are the new textbooks. So I will absolutely describe it right now. Um, but the best way to really understand it is to play it or to see someone else play it. But at its core, the empty toy is a set of abstract puzzle pieces that are uh, have different materials, textures, and shapes, and they connect in hundreds of different ways. So if you and I were playing and there was a, you know, a facilitator in the room, that facilitator would take seven pieces and they would choose a few of them for me. They would create a pattern. I would then have to describe that pattern so that you can recreate that pattern. The challenge is that both of us are actually blindfolded before we're even uh, given the pattern. So in five to 15 minutes, we gain huge insights into how we deal with patience, frustration, but more importantly, how do we creatively communicate? So, you know, whether it's just the two of us or there's like 10 or 200 of us, or, you know, where it's a six-year-old or it's like the CEO of a company, the game just ends up acting as a metaphor for a real life scenario. So you can start talking about how you dealt with frustration, how you dealt with setbacks, but then also how you supported each other and, you know, trying to use creative communication to explain this abstract, strange thing that you can only really see with your hands. It's very cool. Actually, it's something you've got to really watch. I found a lot of the videos, (laughs) not only entertaining, very funny, certainly very productive. (laughs) It's really great. I, I recommend just Googling the empathy toy and and watching these videos in action. They're great. They're now, correct me if I'm wrong on the statistics, but you've got your toy in a thousand schools across 45 countries and into now MBA programs, uh, corporations, BMO Bank of Chicago, Mm -hmm. FedEx. Is this the trajectory that you expected for the product? Um, (laughs) Not exactly. I know when I started it, my passion was really about you know, not just the empathy toy, but we're working on a toy right now that teaches failure. I had an idea of an entire category of toys, you know, being used in the classroom. So that was my initial focus. And it's still crazy to me that teachers, principals, vice principals have really embraced it. I'm not an educator. I went through an education system, but I'm not, I didn't study education. I have an amazing team of, of teachers and facilitators, both in my core team, but also we have advisors and incredible communities that have help shape and inform our guidebooks. So the toy was my thesis project in university. But when I started 20 Minute Toys, I knew right off the bat that I'm going to start sketching out, you know, what are the workshops and lessons? Now we have over 52. And while I created the foundation of that, both the facilitators and educators on our team, but then the actual schools that were using our toys informed our redesign and update of our guidebooks that now have over 52 different ways to play. It's still crazy to me. We got a request just uh, in the last few weeks where every public school in Milwaukee 
is now going to be, is now going to have an empathy toy. And so that kind of blows my mind that not only is it being embraced, but we're now able to start hearing stories. So I've been bootstrapping the business. So for anyone that knows the difficulty of doing your own startup, if you add on top of that, not having any investors and also mass producing physical products that can put a lot of pressure and stress. So not only did I have the support of schools, but our first school board that saw my uh, TEDx talk on Twitter and put in their first order were actually able to purchase the toys and pay for them before I went into production. And that's how I was able to get that first production going. Yeah, I was going to ask um, you how, how and, you floated because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a big PO. And then you said, you, you know, you're bootstrapping the whole thing, no outside investors. Mm. And I'm thinking unless yeah. you've got a large nest egg, the natural no. question would be, <laughs> are they paying for it up front? So thank you. Yeah, for I, 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 yeah I, uh, I by design or just by necessity have it had a in the first three years had a pay and wait model. Um, so I like to say I, I've written about my story. The title is uh, These Aren't My Pants which is just kind of the story of what it's like to bootstrap a company where I had a very well respected and the person I'm, 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 I respect as well, who's really important in our community, introduced me at an event as rich and famous. <laughs> I remember afterwards, she went off stage and I was like, like I bike to this event. Like, these aren't my pants. <laughs> like, like, it's like, just cause, cause like we weren't like, we're in Time Magazine. I was in like, I was in a magazine that she read on her way to the airport and like, yes, we're, we're actually in over a thousand schools. Now we're in a few thousand schools. We're in 45 countries. We're also in like HR departments, but that's because of a lot of hard work and, and sacrifice. But also I've definitely known in that in our community for taking advantage of every single available support that there is. So anytime there's been, you know, we won the spin master innovation award in our first three months and that was an award loan. And so that not only helped us, help me increase our production run so I could have, you know, inventory for the year, but they've been incredible like support and and I found mentors through those programs. So yeah, it's been really tough. So I always like to kind of balance it with like, we're doing so well, but also like, this is super hard. And I always want to encourage designers to take that leap, but taking that leap with the idea that you need to, you need to know that you're going to be putting in years and years and years of sacrifice to make something look like it's an overnight success. So. Can you explain, mm-hmm. I guess, why you're so adamant about the bootstrapping thing? I mean, I've seen the talks on it. Just for listeners mm-hmm. who don't know you, what is it about bootstrapping versus taking outside investment? Yeah, well, so I'm new to the statistics or the information about it. I'm starting to capture a bit more of it. I know my story is I just didn't even think it was an option. I'm a first-time female founder. So the idea of convincing someone else that this empathy toy idea is going to be super lucrative. A, I didn't know if I wanted to spend my energy convincing a room of of very powerful people that it was going to work. I actually didn't feel comfortable taking, even if that was the case, I didn't feel really comfortable taking anyone's money without proving it to myself first. So the fact that the first investment we had was an order from a school, which was a five-figure order, which let me go into production uh, and let me hire first two contractors that was a way to tell myself, okay, interesting. So there is, you know, there's, there's interest here. And then it kind of, I I joke, it's kind of like a series of escalating dares. So then I thought, okay, well, if they got it, are they actually using it? And Mm. so we spent a lot of time going to those schools in Toronto and Montreal and saying, okay, well, you got it, but have you used it? And I think just over the years, investment or getting investors comes up and people ask, but 
without actually knowing how abysmal the statistics are, I think something like 4% of investment even goes to female. Like I think even females on a team, when you're looking for investment, I think gender plays a big role into it. I think your network, I'm like, I'm That's so interesting. That's, that is so interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 4%. For, yeah. And that's, there's an amazing organization called CEO and I applied for the CEO. It's a radical generosity fund. And we were the, I was in their first cohort. So that was just over two years ago. And it's a pool of money based on at the first year, they got 500 women. Now they have, you know, thousands of women that every year are putting in just over a thousand dollars to create an interest-free six-figure loan that then gets loaned out to, you know, five or 10 female-led startups, which then allows you to continue, not just continue existing, but really allows you to thrive. I think there's like an average, like a 500% um, increase in revenue since they've started that program with the ventures that they've invested in. And they don't take equity. They don't take any of that. It's called radical generosity for a reason. It's because they know that there's a gap. And instead of telling women to be more aggressive or to adapt, they just said, we just need a different room. Like this room isn't working. We're going to stop trying to fit in this room and we're just going to make a new room. That's fantastic. It's an incredible, yeah, it's an incredible, incredible organization. And I think that's when I started to see a lot more of the statistics with things that I just kind of had felt like I, I've been in rooms with other kind of the quote unquote startup, startup bro kind of vibe. And at no point did I think, no, people are not going to take me seriously. And then on top of that, I'm, I'm trying to do, like, I'm not making an app. Like, there's a lot of reasons why investment just didn't seem like an option. And I think what's been so amazing is we've been able to now, like, I don't think I've been in, I've never been in a position where I had, it wouldn't exist without investment. I just needed to be really, really clever and work hard and with some luck, just get it off the ground. Have you had prospective angels or VCs start to kind of approach you and you've had to, I guess, sort of fend them off or has that not happened mm-hmm. yet? Every now and then I get a few emails or introductions or, you know, people who are really curious and interested and want to to check in. But I think I talk so much about how we don't have it and I'm like not completely convinced that we need it or if it's appropriate for what we're doing. They're not necessarily like bashing down the door, but I think more so what I'm finding is I'm getting designers, teachers, facilitators, people who run work in accelerators who actually just want to join our team and and want to be involved somehow because they see how exciting it is and they want to be able to contribute to it. I think the thing that I get so excited about is when I do get to work with yeah, amazing educators, facilitators and designers because I I knew in my heart if this if I wasn't going to start 21 toys that I needed to devote my energy to something that was a social enterprise that still had a really huge creative component to it. So I just feel really lucky that, you know, I'm, I've essentially have that environment. And, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of designers and and creators out there that want to be involved in something that has a social purpose. Well, look, congratulations on all the success with 21 Toys and the Empathy Toys. It's an incredible story. I know we're going to be up on time. I want to ask you just one last question before you go, because I'm Mm -hmm. intrigued. You mentioned the failure toy. I know it's not coming uh, or it's not out. (laughs) It is coming. Excuse me. Can you give us a little bit of a hint as to what we can expect? Yeah. So it's going to be cousin to the Empathy Toy. So it's going to be another abstract, most definitely like wood game that is actually all about balance. And it's all about personal and shared risk. And it's going to really play with that 
uncomfortable spot where you're asked to build or unbuild something. And there's a certain amount of risk involved. And while you're dealing with that and making those negotiations, other players are actively, I don't want to say marking, but kind of judging or questioning the decisions that you're making. And so my hope with the failure toy is the same thing with the empty toy. It's not necessarily about just saying, okay, just be crazy empathic or just fail fast, fail often. It's We don't even have the word for failure in our education right now. We don't talk about failure education right now. We're just practicing failure abstinence, which is just don't talk about it. Like it's happening to everyone, but we're all going to pretend like it isn't. So I'm really excited to use the toy to start a discussion around what is it like when I'm dealing with either of a real failure or perception of failure and how does that influence what type of risks I do or don't take. Social media also influencing the nature of that behavior. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's, everyone's doing incredible. No one's failing at anything on Facebook, yeah, certainly. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's like the most meta project I've done so far. <laughs> I keep being like, it's not done yet. It's not perfect. It's not ready. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> you're designing a toy for failure and you're like prototyping it and it, some pieces aren't working and now they're kind of working. So it's just, it's mostly just been a really interesting like therapy session for myself. But I think now that I'm starting to put it in other people's hands, we do have a failure list and we're hoping to launch failure workshops as soon as I would say as early as this summer but definitely you'll be hearing from us in the fall. So if anyone is interested, you can look up the failure toy. We have a nice long uh, failure list. So we'll be I, able to post it on it. I love that it's an innovation also that's not going to require an app, no battery, no USB cord. <laughs> Another beautiful yeah. innovation. Okay, Alana, so where can people find out more about 21 Toys and about you? Yeah, so you can find us at 21toys.com. So it's written out like the words, not the numbers. But as you said, if you just Google empathy toy, you can find us our website online. And if you want to find us on social media, it's 21toys on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Okay, awesome. Well, it's an amazing story. Wish you continued success. And thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is sponsored by Scriberbase, experts in subscription e-commerce. Visit Scriberbase.com for more details. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production.
Electricast.